You're listening to Retail Disrupted, a podcast that explores the latest industry developments and the trends that will shape how we shop in the future. I'm your host, Natalie Berg. Retail consultant Graham Salt is joining me on the podcast today. We're going to be discussing Wilco's unexpected return to the high street. We're going to take a closer look at trading updates from fashion retailers ASOS and Next. And we're going to explore some of the opportunities and challenges facing high streets in this digital era. Graham, welcome to Retail Disrupted. Oh, thank you. Good to be here. Well, it's great to have you here. I know we've known each other for a long time and our paths have crossed over the years as retail commentators. Mm. We've done a lot of events together and oh, I've yeah. always, you know, I always really value your thoughts and views on retail and especially the placemaking side of retail, yeah. which is not my area of expertise. So I always kind of look to you for, uh, for insights in that space. And uh, yeah, it's great to have you on the show. Really looking forward to the conversation. Um, I know that you are wearing a few different hats these days. You are a retail consultant. Yeah. You are a member of the High Streets Task Force. That's right. And most recently, you've been appointed chairman of Durham Business Group. So firstly, congratulations. That sounds oh, very you. exciting. Yeah, thank you. Well, it's, um, I'm, I'm, I'm big about networking and Durham Business Group is one of the biggest network uh, organizations in the Northeast. So it's really nice to be a a part of it and to be kind of out there kind of championing the value of, of people working together and talking to each other. Fantastic. No, that sounds really exciting. And um, more generally, Graham, what, what's keeping you busy these days in your day job as a retail consultant? Um, well, I, I've, I've got a mix of work, really. So as you might well know, um, I've got some kind of ongoing projects where I work uh, on a regular basis in places like Durham and Chesterley Street. So I'm basically recruited there to work two or three days a month working with uh, retailers and other businesses and and being there as a source of support and encouragement and a and a bridge sometimes between kind of uh, between uh, occupiers and landlords and just uh, playing a part in helping to uh, uh, support and promote and curate the place and then alongside that I've I have various kind of um, like one-off projects. So I was recently working down in Wiltshire in Malmesbury. I've been doing some work in Spalding in Lincolnshire. So it's always a real pleasure to be able to meet different people in different places and just to experience different towns and different businesses and to and to constantly be inspired by all that. Fantastic. And it does feel like physical retail is very much alive and kicking. And we're going to come on to that um, throughout the, the conversation. But if we could kick off with I guess let's just get the the negative stuff out of the way, right? <laughs> I'm not going to say I, I promise I won't say death of the high street. I know you hate that phrase, and and I do too because it's Good. it's evolving, right? It's not it's not exactly. dying, it's That's evolving. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> okay, but let's let's address the the kind of uh, the doom and gloom. So. We know we're in this period of profound structural change. And again, that's the phrase that I feel like I've been saying for the past decade, but for good reason, right? Because there has been so much disruption. We've seen the rise of e-commerce and digital. We've had COVID, which, as we all know, totally upended shopping habits. We've had the worst cost of living crisis in a generation. And now we have ongoing geopolitical instability in various parts of the world. And all of these things have directly impacted retail in some shape or form. But 
I think high streets have been struggling for a long time, right? And stores are still closing. Big brands are still going bankrupt. In light of all this disruption, what, in your view, are the biggest challenges facing the high street today? Well, um, I think it's a good summary there of all the of all the challenges that have been thrown at at businesses and places. And actually, I, I always argue that given all all that is being thrown at businesses it's remarkable that that in almost every place that i go to there are businesses that are telling me graham we're having our best year you know or or businesses opening and expanding and there's and there's lots of really positive stories and that's why um i i spend so much of my time really banging away on Twitter and LinkedIn and elsewhere, trying to amplify some of these positive stories because there is a danger that amid all the doom, um, uh, stores and, and businesses that are doing actually really well and demonstrating incredible uh, resilience and creativity get overlooked. So I'm, I'm, I'm really passionate, as you know, about, about kind of making sure that we don't forget that side of things. Um, but for sure, there are all kinds of things happening at the moment that if they weren't happening, it would make life an awful lot easier for everybody. And um, um, and one of the things that, that everybody in my shoes always mentions, of course, is business rates. Um, and, um, and I know from my work in Durham and elsewhere that it absolutely is one of the biggest hurdles that is preventing uh, particularly retailers from from either um, staying in their existing stores or expanding into new premises or even starting out in the first place. Um, and so uh, it's it's certainly something that that I think everyone accepts needs to be sorted out. No one really has any answers for how to sort it out other than to keep pushing it into the future. Um, but but I think we've seen already that um, in the revaluation that took place in April, uh, quite a lot of properties in the places that I work did end up paying lower business rates as a result of that, which is uh, is good. But I think ultimately um, some form of of tax that you know, isn't isn't about paying based on the value of where you're trading from, but is based on 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 how much you're selling has to be the way forward. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's been one of the perennial um, challenges for retailers trading on the high street. And I guess um, it's even more, um, it's, it's sort of been exacerbated by the inflationary environment that we find yeah. ourselves in. And, and yes, cost pressures are beginning to ease. Um, in fact, uh, there was a report that just came out from EY. They released a, a quarterly profit warnings report. Um, and there's some positive news there. They showed that, uh, and I'm going to come back to business rates in a sec, but I just want to briefly highlight this because this is a little bit of good news. Um, the EYA report showed that in the third quarter, UK listed retailers issued five profit warnings, which is a decrease of 55% compared to the same period last year. So I think that is a sign that things are slowly starting to improve from a kind of macroeconomic perspective. But just going back to business rates, um, you know, there it could potentially get worse before it, it maybe eventually does get better because uh, there are reports that business rates could rise by nearly two billion pounds next year because, of course, that rate is linked to inflation. And now a number of retailers like Tesco, 
M&S, Ikea, they're now calling on the government to scrap the increase in next month's autumn budget. And then we have the BRC, the big retail trade body, warning that without government action, it'll ultimately be the consumers that foot the bill in the form of higher prices. So I'm curious to get your views on this, Graham. Do you think that a huge rates bill could be the final nail in the coffin for some retailers? Well, um, I think uh, certainly, ultimately, all of us are paying for business rates uh, in the in the products that we buy. So, um, it, in a sense, it's, if you replace the business rates with something else, you know, um, it will still fall on the consumer anyway, ultimately. But I think um, I, in terms of the uh, upcoming increase that is being uh, expected. I guess my heart kind of sank when I saw the boss of UK hospitality using that another nail in the coffin phrase, because I I know these trade bodies have their own agendas and sometimes they do use um, quite bold and fiery language uh, to make their point and to have their influence. But honestly, I I really wish sometimes they would do a bit more of, of flagging up the good stuff that's happening, because actually if I was if I was a boss of UK hospitality, I wouldn't be using that nail in the coffin phrase. It's a phrase that I refuse to use. I never use it. I never will use it because I think it's really unhelpful. You know, I would be saying, actually, you know, a look at how good hospitality and retail is doing, uh, given, you know, all that's happening. Um, um, I'd be praising the ingenuity and creativity and the resilience of these businesses and saying you know we can be really proud of what these businesses are achieving but actually if we have this business rates increase happening now it's going to be deeply unhelpful and is going to have an impact on on how far businesses can keep doing what they're doing i would i would frame it that way uh, because i think um i I think in the media, there is so much of this ridiculous apocalyptic language. We don't need the trade bodies adding to it themselves. Yeah. Bad news sells, Graham. <laughs> well, um, also good news can sell. If um, Good I news think, can yeah, sell, for sure. Yeah, exactly. And we are definitely going to come on to some good news, Graham, I, I promise. But before we do that, I do want to ask you about store closures. We are still in 2023 seeing store closure announcements from major high street retailers, M&S, Boots, Argos, Clark's, New Look. There's still a lot of activity in this space. And I think, you know, if we were talking about this maybe five years ago, we'd all be saying that, look, it's an uncomfortable truth that there is too much physical space to reflect demand because we're shopping more and more online, right? And it's just a balancing act and redressing the balance, if you will. And what we have seen over the past sort of five, 10 years is a right-sizing of store portfolios to acknowledge this, to acknowledge that we're living in this digital era and we don't need as much physical space and the physical space left remaining really has to be repurposed and worth our while. But my question to you is, considering that we are still seeing some fairly significant store closure announcements from these big brands, my question to you is, do you think that the industry has now recalibrated or is there perhaps some more right-sizing to do? 
yeah it's a good question i think i think we're probably getting more to where we need to be in that if you think about it covid was like the big shake-up and it got rid of a lot of the retailers who were kind of hanging around not very healthily anyway and so actually uh, apart from wilco which i'm sure you'll come on to in a minute uh, there hasn't actually been all that many in the way of big retail collapses since covid um uh, which is it's good in a way as a, i think it demonstrates how a lot of the retailers who are still around are getting it right in many ways uh, but you're right to flag uh, M&S and Boots and others and again I think in a sense you have to kind of unpick some of these individual retail histories and not just assume that it's all because of of, of the high street having problems so obviously uh, Boots for example it uh, it took over um, Alliance Pharmacy I think it was and it ended up with all kinds of of duplicate locations Boots closing stores now it's it's getting rid of some of those overlapping locations that that are the result of its acquisition uh, in the past. Uh, similarly, uh, uh, arguably with Marks and Spencers, you can say, well, actually, it's it's got this bigger state that that it hasn't really invested in for a long time. So, so if it was any other retailer, if it was if it was Next, if it was John Lewis, it would probably have got rid of of quite a lot of these sites before. So, I I know it's it's very difficult when any place loses these kind of iconic names and and it becomes a story in the press but i think i think you do have to um try and understand what the context of it is and the history behind it and also to offset that with all the good stuff and and i'm i'm always banging on about uh uh, all the independents that are opening and uh, and that is a trend that we're seeing a lot of um obviously they can't fill uh, uh all these big units but but in terms of the uh, interest and appeal of lots of retail destinations uh, independents for the most part are the ones who are coming in and making places attractive and interesting and somewhere that, that people want to go to that's a really interesting point. Um, and I think you touched on Wilco, which is a really nice segue, because I do want to talk about um, what went wrong at Wilco. Um, but also, again, as I can sense that you're really itching to talk about some good news, <laughs> why Wilco and how Wilco is making a high street comeback. But before we do that, let's briefly introduce Wilco, because I know we have a lot of international listeners. So a quick introduction and a recap as to what actually happened. Wilco is a value retailer based here in the UK. They sell everyday essentials. It's all non-food. So home goods, stationery, pet care, cleaning products, gardening, um, all sorts of kind of weird and wonderful things a uh, small selection of pick and mix it's it's a kind of strange but very useful selection of stuff and for those of you based in the u.s i mean i think the closest comparison it's not really a fair comparison but the closest comparison is that it's kind of like a small and very unflashy version of target a very low budget <laughs> version of target but it is a much loved brand. It has been around for nearly 100 years. It had around 400 stores across the UK. It went bust recently, 
because it failed to secure a buyer for the entire business. So unfortunately, all the stores were closed. Nearly 12,500 jobs were lost. And it felt like a real blow to the high street. Now, the owner of another value retailer, one of their competitors called The Range, uh, their owner, CDS Superstores, bought the intellectual property and website. And a number of the physical locations were sold to competitors, B&M and Poundland. So that's where we were. But just a few weeks after all of this drama unfolding, CDS Superstores, so the new owner of Wilco, they've announced that Wilco will be making a return to the high street. So they're going to open five stores before Christmas, and they're saying that in the next two years, there will be more than 100 Wilco stores open across the UK. So it's a really unusual story with lots of twists and turns and a largely positive outcome, I'd say. Lots of drama. (laughs) But overall, I think it's great to see a brand with as much heritage as Wilco's being preserved. You know, that's something that doesn't happen very often. Now, we're going to come on to the reopening and what this means for retail, Graham. But first, I want to ask a very simple question, which is, what went wrong in the first place? Yeah, well, well I think um, in the UK, we have a lot of, of value retailers of, of a Wilco kind of ilk. We've got B&M, we've got uh, Home Bargains, we've got Pound Stretcher, there's loads of them. Um, uh, all filling that space that used to be filled by Woolworth, of course, back in the, uh, 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 well, back for 100 years over the last century or so, uh, until Woolworths itself went bust in 2008. But but I think Wilco's uh, issues were basically, it it ran out of money. Uh, um, it, it, um, if you went into Wilco at any point over the last three years or so, during and since COVID, you were greeted with empty shelves and so um its its whole purpose was to be the place that you could go to if you wanted some a deodorant or grass seed or pet food or um or or sunflower hearts or whatever it might be i always get our bird food from (laughs) wisconsin always used to i should say (laughs) go in there and 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 it would always have those things And, and as soon as their supply chains got screwed up and you would go in and the and there were gaps on the shelves um and all kinds of issues supposedly around uh, suppliers not wanting to supply anymore and and the cash flow and the rest of it you know that was the uh, real kind of issue i think in that you started to go to b&m for your bird food or to pound stretcher or to home bargains and people got out of the habit i think of going to wilco even though they loved it because you can only love a retailer so much if they can't actually sell you what you want and um and i think that was really the issue um um i've i've got a bit grumpy at times with um uh all these bbc articles uh, arguing that it's it's to do with wilco having too many stores on the high street and and other retailers moving out out to retail parks and i I don't really buy that because I think I think the whole point of Wilco was its convenience and the fact that a lot of people um, uh, who um, 
a lot of people on low incomes actually who who maybe don't have cars who would use the bus who would walk you know they found wilco stores really important and really convenient on the high street but also um as we'll come on to the fact that so many uh, other retailers are picking up these high street sites i think um is an indication that actually those locations aren't so awful after all. So I don't think it was the locations of Wilco that were the problem. I think it was really its ability to trade successfully and its ability to give customers what they want in those last few years. Because like the boss of the range has said, uh, for the bulk of, of Wilco's 90 plus years of history, it was, it was very successful. It was still making profits until only two or three years ago. So, so it, it wasn't it wasn't really a broken retailer in the way that some of the other ones that have gone bust have been yeah that's interesting i mean at the end of the day it comes down to getting the basics right and executing well which yeah. you know in, in amongst all this disruption it can and change in retail sometimes i think it can be easy to take your eye off the ball and, and just focus on yeah, just just doing the basics and doing it well. So, um, okay, so that's that's a really interesting take on the location side because I agree. I saw a lot of commentary around the fact that the locations weren't right, but it's a really good point that well, if others were quick to grab those sites, then obviously there was some value there. So really interesting stuff. So just um, on the reopening, Graham, um, mm. I know you closely follow. You've um, you are follow. The, the sort of rise and fall of Woolworths, which yes. was, as you mentioned, one of the earliest and, and possibly the, the most significant of the retail heavyweights to have disappeared from our high streets. Mm. There's been talk on and off over the years of Woolworths returning to the high street, which again, I think is testament to the strength of the brand and the heritage and, and that loyalty that still exists, um, oddly enough. <laughs> Um, and also others that have disappeared, like Gap and BHS, for example, they've resurfaced in various forms, whether that's online or as brands in some of their competitor stores. And I'm curious to get your thoughts, um, I guess, more generally on this revival of brands that maybe lost their lost their way, but still resonate with shoppers. Mm. And then specifically for Wilco, curious to kind of get your views on how things might change with these new stores? Because I can imagine that the new owners won't want to repeat the same mistake. So just curious to get your views on what the stores might look like under new ownership. Okay. Um, so on the first point about uh, kind of defunct brands coming back, um, it does happen a lot. Um, so after Woolworth went bust, it, it was bought by Very and came back as an online brand, but, but it didn't last very long because I think it missed the point really. And, and, and so when you're kind of reinventing an old brand, you have to kind of not lose sight of of what the point of it was. And and the point of Woolworth was that it was there and it had a particular smell and atmosphere and, and, and memories. And and if you just kind of bung that online, um, you know, it 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 didn't work. It, it doesn't it translate, the, does it? No, it missed the point of what Woolies yeah. was all about. And I think um I think the danger uh uh, is or was the same with Wilco potentially when it was announced that the range was buying the Wilco brand and relaunching Wilco.com I was thinking again well how's that going to work because the whole point of Wilco is that it's just there on the high street you pop in when you need something but but it began to make more sense at the point where uh, it became clear that the range was going to sell Wilco brand products 
in its own stores already. So, 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 so it's worth explaining probably that the range is is more of a big shed kind of retailer. So it tends to uh, it tends to operate from kind of out of town, uh, a big box retail uh, locations. It's got about two hundred now around the country, um, and so Wilco products are already being sold uh, uh, in those stores. Uh, as of last week, I think it was. And so I was thinking even before the announcement of new Wilco stores that, well, if you're if you're trading Wilco.com online, if you're if you're selling Wilco brand products in the range stores, it's not that big a leap if you're producing the Wilco own brand anyway to then trade a Wilco store. So I wasn't I wasn't entirely surprised, although I was very pleased when it was announced that, that the Wilco stores were um, were coming back and and we don't know at this point if the first five stores are going to be uh, old locations resurrected or, or completely new ones you know, all that i think is still to be revealed but but it's um it's quite interesting and i think honestly there's every reason to assume it uh, it will work because uh if as i say one of the biggest problems of wilco was that um it couldn't fill the shelves. It, its supply chains were all screwed up. The range is a big business that is very good at, at keeping its stores well stocked. So it will be lovely in a sense to go into a Wilco store and see it full again of Wilco of Wilco own brand products. Because again, it's probably worth emphasizing to your listeners that actually one of Wilco's big strengths relative to uh, other uh, discounters is its own brand products. It was, um, I think they accounted for about half of all the sales maybe. And Oh wow, that's um, higher than I thought. Yeah, um, and and just really strong in areas like uh, pet care and and garden birds and 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 um, uh, health and beauty and and stationery and all kinds of things. And and um, and if you um, if you go online, one of the things that everyone was talking about after Wilco went bust was the poo bag. So, so if you if you have a if you have a dog and you need the little kind of bags to put the uh, bits in, um, you know, Wilco did fantastic poo bags. And everyone was lamenting the loss of the poo bag. Oh and, wow, I did oh, not know that. Yeah, I was in the <laughs> maybe they'll be back. Well, well, they already are. I was a, um, I was in the range yesterday in Gateshead, and one of the first things they've brought back is a big display of the poo bags because because it's awesome. not. It's not just the brand affection, it's the fact that actually people really valued some of the Wilco own brand products for offering quality at a really good price. So. Yeah, it is those really niche things as well, because I always get um, wipes for my glasses, like lens wipes. I mm. always get them from Wilco, like religiously. Yeah. If I'm out of those, I go straight to Wilco. And that is such a niche thing. So, uh, yeah, interesting stuff. But yeah, really good, really, really good to see them coming back to the high street. And as you say, if they can just fix the basics. And I think I also read that they are going to be putting some kind of terminal. I, I think I read it quickly. I think it was like an endless aisle type screen or something in store where they can connect the physical and digital a little bit more too. So interesting to see how that plays out, or whether they really need to go down that route. But um, But yeah, definitely a little bit of a tweaking of the model, fixing the basics, and hopefully they'll be good to go. Yeah, it's a good uh, uh, it's a good way for the range to also get its its 
uh, its range seen in different locations. And like I say, it's, it's, a, it's a big box retailer. It tends not to have much of a presence uh, in town in town or city centres. And so if it can use those Wilco stores as a way to showcase uh, its wider offering, you know, that can get the range in front of people who maybe haven't been aware of it before as well. Yeah, absolutely. Great. So I just want to um, switch gears a little bit now and talk about a couple of other retailers that reported results this week. And I think it's been a week of mixed fortunes because we had ASOS, the pure play fashion retailer reporting, and we also had Next, also a fashion retailer, but of course uh, has a very strong presence on the high street as well as online. In fact, um, a stat that I love about Next is that they went in, they were, I think they were the only or one of the only high street retailers to have gone into the pandemic with over half of their sales already online. Mm. So an interesting little stat to show just, you know, they were obviously an early adapter in that space. But um, yeah, so just to briefly recap on what we saw this week. So ASOS, uh, not great news at ASOS. They said this week that there are Full year sales are expected to be down by up to 15%. Uh, They announced, uh, because the results were delayed, they announced just yesterday that last year they reported an annual loss of nearly 300 million pounds. They're now exploring a potential sale of the Topshop brand, which, Mm -hmm. as you might remember, they bought during the pandemic. Shares have plunged. It's, It's not great, a great time for ASOS. Um, very briefly, Next, on the other hand, continues to be, you know, retail's golden child. They released their Q3 trading statement uh, yesterday, and it's pretty much all good news, despite the really challenging backdrop. Uh, sales were up. Uh, interestingly, online sales were up nearly 7%, while store sales were actually slightly negative. So interesting to see that kind of mix, uh, probably weather-related, I would, would assume, had some really strange weather in this past uh, past few months, which I know has kind of wreaked havoc with fashion retail more generally. But um, mm. so yeah, worth calling that out. But next, raise their profit outlook for the fourth time in six months, and they just continue to get it right. You know, they've been one of the more resilient retailers out there, but they just continue to, you know, again talking about the basics, they just continue to execute well and and just get it right. And so, Graham, I'm interested to get your views on these results what do they tell us about the state of retail and are these results perhaps a reflection of of what's happening across the wider industry yeah because i think if you if you look at the overall trends in the headlines of late it's um as somebody who champions the high street it's it's actually quite nice it makes a change that a lot of the negative headlines are about the pure play online retailers um, and we've seen that with ASOS, we've, we've seen others like um, uh, Boohoo and Zalando and Very and all kinds of, of, of pure plays who are finding it hard going at the moment. And I think uh, in some cases, uh, it's worth saying with ASOS, you know, maybe uh, it's, uh, its purchase of Topshop is another of those brands that doesn't translate into a pure play online environment because it was it was such a stalwart of bricks and mortar people used to like going there and trying things on and the and the vibe of the stores and all the rest of it so i think i think maybe in in taking it purely online it missed a trick and it might be that in the future if it sells top shop uh, it could make a reappearance perhaps under someone else's ownership um but i think 
a lot of these issues that the pure players are facing now do go back to covid and that time when if we wanted to buy any new clothes we had to buy online and i think a lot of them made the mistake of thinking that that the trend that was happening was going to keep happening forever and mm. what has happened instead is that actually where we are now is probably where we would have been if covid hadn't happened in terms of online market share but the uh, issue is that is that these uh, online retailers have invested in more capacity and more warehousing and more whatever else and now they're thinking oh blimey you know what do we do with all this all this excess space we don't need anymore and so i think they haven't really planned for what might happen uh, and that's why they're facing these challenges now but um but uh, asos is a funny one is one of the things that i was reading um uh, in their results is how they've got their new strategy of going back to fashion uh, and when a retailer comes out with nonsense like that it's like you're a fashion retailer you know if your strategy is going back to fashion what on earth are you talking about that, that stuck out for me as well i have to admit yeah, it, it was a strange it, phrase <laughs> it's it, it's really it's really concerning when you see that kind of thing um and you think hasn't anyone looked at that and thought how ridiculous it looks. Um, but don't you think ASOS is having a little bit of an identity crisis more generally? Because I just think, I mean, when I give talks around, you know, the future of retail and, and just get it, as we've mentioned a lot during this conversation, you're just getting the basics right. I mean, mm. at the end of the day, you have to do two things. You have to differentiate from your rivals, yeah. right? You have to offer something and you have to have a USP, be really clear about that proposition and do it really well. Um, and of course, with ASOS, they they have new disruptive brands that are coming in and giving them a run for their money. Everyone from Shein and Timu to uh, the more traditional disruptors from Boohoo and et cetera. Um, so you've got to differentiate. And I think ASOS is struggling there. But also, um, you've got to stay relevant. I mean, that sounds really obvious, right? But you have to stay relevant. And I think ASOS 10, 15 years ago was very relevant because... Mm retailers didn't really do fashion retailers didn't really do e-commerce very well but now fashion retailers have really gotten to grips with selling i mean there's a long way to go don't get me wrong but they've come a long way in that space and at the same time you've seen we've seen um the rise of tiktok and instagram as places where shoppers will discover new brands and increasingly where they'll couple of clicks buy products so that's becoming sort of the new the new place to be and it's just not relevant to go search on asos and find you know hundreds of thousands even of little black dresses it's just not really the way that people are shopping these days so i i just wonder if there's a bit more of a, an existential crisis uh facing asos and and how that might play out in the future but yeah interesting times for retail but next on the other hand again nice to see a traditional retailer uh, tr a retailer that has a presence both on the high street and online continuing to get things right and perhaps serving as a, an inspiration for those retailers that are struggling to to do it in these challenging times to do things well in these challenging times yeah i agree uh, i think um, i think next is uh, is doing well because it gets all the elements of its of its of its um its presence right it's it's really good online it's really good at the at the buying process and the returns process but also it's uh, its stores are always look well invested in they always look you know smart and tidy and and it doesn't take its eye off the ball so i think uh, i think you know it 
it's to next it's to next the credit that it it um, it keeps doing well um and and it deserves to because it 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 gets the basics right it it keeps evolving its offer to please customers and and if you keep doing that you're on the right track really yeah yeah absolutely and a lot of that i think is a reflection of their leadership and you know it's they've there's been consistency in leadership and execution for a long period of time so to yeah. their credit to uh, lord wolfson's credit um so graham i'm conscious of time i want to switch gears quickly and talk about some of the documentaries that you've been working on oh, so yes. <laughs> you've been on tv a ton recently you've been on channel five uh <laughs> talking about Greg's talking about Tesco and just last night a documentary on little aired called little behind the scenes 24 seven. Um, can you talk us through some of the insights from your interviews? And I guess the key theme here uh, based on the documentaries that you've contributed to is around food retail. So curious to get your views on, I haven't had a chance to watch the little one, yet, but that's very much uh, something I'll be doing on repeat. So um, curious to get your views on some of the big trends impacting food retail these days, because there's been a lot of disruption in that space as well, both online and in store. Yes. Um, well, it's um, uh, it's always nice to be involved in these things and to, and to be appearing on TV. It's that uh, it's good fun and good practice and, uh, and, uh, and a fun thing to do. Um, um, in terms of yeah, in terms of little um, uh, and Tesco, I suppose um, I tend to come in and quite often give a bit of a historical perspective on these things, as as usually how it works is they bring in a whole load of different talking heads, all with different expertise, and so you've got others there who are um, more clued up on the consumer side of things and the psychology, mm. and and my input is. Uh, it's quite often about placing what's happening now uh, in some kind of context. And so um, uh, in terms of little, it was it was really making the point that it hasn't always been the success story that it is now. It's easy to forget um, uh, quite how hard it was for little and the other hard discounters to make those inroads uh, in the early days. And I think um, uh, it's a combination of, of just uh, hammering away at their kind of brand uh, presence, but also tweaking the offer to make sure that it's more relevant to it, that it's more relevant to a UK uh, consumer. So I made the point, for example, mm. that although Lidl is is part of a German company, it's actually one of the biggest investors in UK suppliers, for example. So so um, and both and both Lidl and Audi are are really strong these days. That pushing their credentials as investors in local producers and and UK supply chains and that's really important uh, but also I think um, again a theme that came out of the program is that Lidl um, has really improved the quality of its offer and some of the of the own brands that it comes out with uh, under all these kind of weird and wonderful names <laughs> are, um, are actually really good you know and and you go there not because it's necessarily always the cheapest but because actually uh, sometimes you can get really good products at Lidl that you can't get anywhere else and so I think it's a combination of all these factors which is why Lidl and Audi are are nibbling away at the market share of the of the big players now 
Yeah, yeah. No, it is interesting. I did um, something similar for Channel Five a few years ago about Aldi. So mm. we should we should compare notes. <laughs> yeah. But um, but no, it is interesting, and there's there's just so much general interest, isn't there, and how the discounters uh, keep prices low, and and sort of the inner workings of the likes of Aldi and Little. And I think it's especially relevant now, and in, in the face of. Um, food price inflation being what it is, it is obviously beginning to ease, but you know, it's still, I think a challenging time out there for food retailers and consumers looking to get as, uh, as much value as they can from their weekly shop. So interesting stuff. Now, Grim, um, we've covered so much ground. I really appreciate you taking the time and, and being here. We could go on for hours, I'm sure, but, um, just one final question. And I'd like to do a little bit of future gazing, which I'm sure is something you do regularly as a member of the high streets uh, task force. I'm curious to get your views on how the high street might change. If we look ahead to say 2030, 2033, how should we be reimagining these spaces and who are the key stakeholders in making this happen? Okay. Um, I think we're already starting to see how the high street is is changing how it's evolving and and certainly a lot of places that i go to uh it's becoming quite a lot less about shopping and quite a lot more about other things so for example um uh, in Durham or chesley street or the places that i work uh there's there's quite a lot of growth in hospitality so you're seeing more places to eat and drink uh, but not just that you're also seeing um more diverse uses so you're seeing a lot more kind of housing coming in behind and above shops, um, gyms, um, uh, uh, hotels, all kinds of, of community uses as well. And so I always make the point that uh, in a sense, you're going back to how things were maybe a century or more ago, because it wasn't always the case that high streets were homogenous retail back in the uh, late 1800s they used to be a lot more diverse in terms of the functions that you would see in a town or city center so we're going back to that um uh, in a different way of course but it's 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 recalling that kind of heritage um and also um i've made the point before about uh, more and more of of what we're seeing in the center of our towns and cities is is independent as well so it's not the same stuff that you get everywhere and for a long time People had complained about this whole clone town thing, how you'd go to town or city, and it would be the same brand. You'd have you know, uh, always Debenhams and Topshop and all the same things everywhere. And actually, it's no bad thing in some ways that now if you go to Durham or you go to Chesley Street or you go to uh, Spalding or wherever else it is, um, uh, all these places have an offer now, I think, that is much more distinctive and much more interesting, arguably, than it was um, uh, in the past. So I think that there's a lot of, of positive things happening. Um, the challenge, I suppose, um, or my challenge in Durham in particular, is to is is how do we get and how do we keep more retail as well? Because because you need the right balance, and 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 ultimately, it doesn't matter how much people are are shopping online or at the retail parks they still tell you oh we want more on the high street and you think well hang on you're the ones who are shopping at amazon so uh, it's it's partly about it's partly about reminding them of the consequence of their of their own actions but also seeing how we can make it easier for businesses to um 
uh, open and succeed on the high street because retail isn't dead it's still going to be a big part of the high street into the future even if it takes a different form to how it has in the past fantastic Graham, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast and sharing your insights. And to our listeners, if you want to learn more about Graham, you can visit his site, cannyinsights.com. I will post links in the show notes. And if you missed last night's Channel 5 documentary on Little, then you can watch it on repeat on the My5 app. That's all for today. Thank you for listening to Retail Disrupted. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to support the podcast, please leave a rating or review or share it with others. It really makes a difference. 